It has been a year of global extremes, record-breaking heat, severe drought, and unprecedented flooding. The switch to the weather pattern known as El Nino generally signals a turn toward more warming, and NOAA reports that warmer-than-average sea surface temperatures will likely continue and may strengthen by midwinter. What might this mean for Alaska's fall and winter storm season? We'll discuss the outlook and preparations today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by Northern Air Cargo, providing year-round transportation of all types of freight from oversized equipment to small packages for commercial or residential. Northern Air Cargo, serving Alaska since 1956. What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community, and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope, there's joy, there's love, there's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org slash share your strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Does a shift to an El Nino weather pattern mean that there will absolutely be severe weather and property damage from storms in western Alaska this fall? Not necessarily, but the chances for these things increase, and our experts on hand today can help us better understand the risk and how Alaska communities should prepare to keep residents safe during and after a storm. In the studio today is Taylor Sawson. Taylor is the Regional Director of Communications for the Red Cross of Alaska. Brian Fisher is the director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. And on the line from Fairbanks is Rick Toman. Rick is an Alaska climate expert with the International Arctic Research Center at UAF. Welcome all of you. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. <clears throat> you can also join us, Alaskans. Are you concerned about fall and winter storms? Do you have questions about how to best protect your home and property? Are you interested in volunteering to help out your Alaska neighbors when disaster strikes? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's start with an outlook from all of you about how you're thinking about and preparing for this fall and winter's weather. Last year at this time, Murbach had slammed the western Arctic coast. Rick, fall storms are not uncommon in Alaska. This year, El Nino is back and ocean temperatures are higher. What are you seeing and watching for with these combined conditions? Well, Lori, certainly autumn is for much of Alaska the stormiest time of year. This is the time of year when the odds favor, don't guarantee, but odds favor the highest precipitation. And with not only El Nino conditions now in the equatorial Pacific, but much of the Pacific Ocean having warmer than normal temperatures, 
Um, I think really a big concern for for the upcoming season that we're now we're basically getting into is really these extreme precipitation events where we get a lot of rain or or as we get later in the season and at elevation get heavy snow. That is really a, a big concern. That's always a concern, but we've double loaded the dice this season. All right. Uh, thanks for getting us started. We'll unpack that more as we go along. But Brian, what kind of preparations are you making at Homeland Security and Emergency Management and to be ready for aiding communities if needed this fall? Thanks, Lori. So to begin with, I'd say, you know, I, I've been with the agency for almost 30 years and and 30 years ago, our fall sea storm season, if you will, was that just that it was in the fall. But in the last decade or so, we've seen um, impactful sea storms as early as late July and really extend into well into winter before short, fast ice comes down and protects our coastal communities. So we have spent the majority of the year since Murbach, since the fall sea storms last year, working with communities to update their emergency operations plans to make sure that they're prepared to support their citizens. Um, a huge effort with all of our partners like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, and regional partners along the West Coast to uh, inform the public to get them prepared individually and as families to uh, withstand the brunt of any storms that happened this fall making sure that they're they have disaster supply kits and emergency communications plans making sure they are coordinated if they have to remove their boats and move their uh, atvs up out of the the coastline and away from the high water marks so all of those type of normal preparation things we've been working on continuously with all of the folks around the state since the last storm season and taylor how and when does the red cross get involved when a disaster happens in alaska and how are you thinking about approaching this upcoming season yeah so whenever there a disaster strikes in alaska the red cross um as long as we're invited by our partners you know with the state and, and other entities as long as we're invited we are involved in a disaster big or small so um in preparation for this disaster season um and pretty much 24 7 because we understand that the pace of disaster is is increasing not only here in Alaska but nationwide. We are doubling, tripling, quadrupling our efforts in order to recruit our volunteer workforce so that we have that capacity to respond to disasters because we know it's not if these large-scale disasters are going to hit in Alaska, it's when. So we're working 365 days a year in order to build the capacity to recruit the volunteers onto our team, to train these volunteers, and to get them out in these communities in order to help these communities better prepare. Um, we are constantly working with different communities across the state, um, working alongside the state to make sure that um, we have courses available and whatnot for them to take to better prepare not only, you know, their businesses, their communities, but also themselves and their individual families um, to make sure that they're prepared for um, the upcoming disaster season. And we'll talk more about that volunteer effort Um uh, later in the program, but when an event happens, what is your primary focus for people in crisis? Yeah, so the Red Cross's specialty when it comes to disaster response is sheltering. Um, whether that be a temporary evacuation point, a temporary warming shelter, if you know homes aren't necessarily severely impacted, if we know that people would just need to be outside of their homes for a short period of time, um, if you know there's a power outage or you know um, access to their homes are limited, 
we can provide that temporary um, evacuation point, but then we're also fully equipped and prepared to operate full-scale shelters if there are a large number of homes that are uninhabitable or damaged. Um, that's really our specialty. We work with our partners um, like the Salvation Army in order to provide you know, food and meals, but we operate those shelters, those congregate shelters that you might you know, think of when you think of the Red Cross, you know, in a big gym with lots of cots and Red Cross blankets. Um, that's really our specialty. And we do that, and the only way that we're able to do that is with our volunteer workforce. So when a disaster happens, you know, we are, you know, even in preparation for a disaster, if we know kind of that it's going to happen, as was the case with Typhoon Murbach, we could see due to, you know, the weather patterns that this was going to impact the western coast. So we were preparing and working with our partners at the state, and it's really when they call us in and when communities call us in and say, hey, we need help. Um, they know that the Red Cross and that they can count on the Red Cross in order to to open those full-scale shelter operations and, and that we have the capacity and the knowledge in order to be able to do that in a, in a quick and timely manner. All right. Thank you so much, all of you, for getting us started here today as we're talking today on Talk of Alaska about the upcoming fall and winter storm season and what the forecast might look like in that regard and how emergency managers and forecasters and emergency assistance folks are planning for it. We have Rick Tolman on the line. Rick is an Alaska climate expert from the International Arctic Research Center at UAF. In the studio with me today is Taylor Sawson, the Regional Director of Communications for the Red Cross of Alaska. And Brian Fisher is the Director of the of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. You can join our conversation if you have questions about preparations in your community or you want to know more about how to volunteer for the Red Cross and get training. Statewide, the number is 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you are in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. 5508422 you can also email talk at alaskapublic.org Rick describe for us how warmer ocean water translates into more moisture in the atmosphere and can you sort of figure out how intense that may be based on the water temperatures themselves Sure I, uh, it's actually quite simple Lori um if you think about um, the amount of moisture that air can hold that goes up very rapidly as uh, air temperature increases. It's not a linear increase. It's much more rapidly than that. So when you have water temperatures, say over the open Pacific Ocean, that are even only a degree or two warmer than the long-term average, that means that air above it can hold that much uh, more water vapor. And warmer water, of course, is evaporating more into the atmosphere and it can do that because the air being warmed by that ocean water can hold more. So when you put that over most of the Pacific basin, that translates to a lot more water vapor in the atmosphere. Now that's just one piece of the puzzle. As always with uh, storms, you have to have a whole bunch of different pieces all come together in the right order in the right time. So having more moisture is one thing, but we still have to wait till those storms come along that can tap into that and focus that precipitation. And then, of course, everywhere in Alaska, the complex interaction with the large-scale atmospheric flow with, the, with all the mountains that we have in Alaska that really 
uh, everyone's heard this phrase, mountains make their own weather, and uh, that is very true working with a larger scale circulation. So it's really just a matter of, of uh, warmer temperatures, warmer water, more, more water in the atmosphere, and then how that plays out as that air moves across our complex terrain in Alaska. Well, talk about some of those other factors. El Nino doesn't guarantee climate chaos, but what are these? Uh, you talked a little bit about it. The mountains have weather systems that are sort of their own and uh, sea surface temperatures. But what are some of the other factors that have to be present to make things dangerous? Sure. So we need we have if we have more water vapor in the air, there's more energy potentially available to storms. But we still have to have those storms come along. And of course, uh, the exact track of storms matters a lot. If we take Murbach, for instance, very unusual place for a typhoon to form west of Wake Island in the subtropical uh, central Pacific. Most of the typhoons that affect Alaska come from just east of Japan and they get caught up in the jet stream. But if the winds aloft where Murbach formed had not been out of the south, but say had been out of the west, Murbach would have moved east and no one would remember Murbach now. Mm. Um, the storm deepened because there was a, in, a push of energy coming off of Asia that moved right into the storm as it crossed into the Aleutians. If that punch of extra energy hadn't been there, Murbach would have been a typical uh, uh, September Bering Sea uh, storm. So there's a lot of pieces that have to come together to get these really extreme events. Of course, most storms aren't extreme events, but when the pieces all come together, uh, we have lots of experience here in Alaska with the kind of havoc that they can wreck. But you're absolutely right. El Nino does not guarantee it, but we're putting a thumb on the scale. All right. Well, I want to uh, talk more about the work that went into forecasting Murbach and um, some other elements about that in just a bit. But Brian, your work has changed in that it's not as seasonal. Um, you both, you know, you and, and Taylor have both alluded to the fact that it's not as seasonal as it once was. Tell us about how significant that change has been and what it's meant for your planning and staffing. So like Taylor said, we've seen a significant <clears throat> increase in the amount of disasters that happened in Alaska. Uh, when I first started, we used to say there was a declared disaster by either the governor or the president once every 90 days. Well, at one point in the last year and a half, we were uh, declaring disasters once a month. Um, and Even that, every 90 days is a lot. It, it is an incredible amount. And I think um, with folks like the Red Cross Salvation Army with their volunteer forces, um, we have a great group called the Alaska Volunteer Organizations Active in Disaster. We're seeing some some incredible burnout. Um, we see that at the state level and with our statewide partners, and we also see it at the local level as well. It's just one storm after another, and they roll right from the fall sea storm season into winter events and then right into wildfire season. So it's back to back to back, and our communities and our residents that are experiencing these disasters don't get a break. They're you know rebuilding from the storm in Murbach, and then they'll have a winter storm that happens. And then, fortunately, this year, the wildfire threat wasn't incredible. It was very short. We only burned about 300,000 acres in the state. But oftentimes, we're, going, we're not taking a time to rest and rebuild and repair because there's another catastrophe that's coming. So part of our work with communities and our partners is to make sure that um, they're taking care of their people. 
so they can be available to take care of the residents of the state when these bad things happen. But it continues to grow. We have the frequency of disasters and sometimes the severity, like we saw in Murbach, seem to be increasing both in frequency and intensity. And that's a big challenge for the state. Yeah, and for people who want to be good citizens and volunteer, but if the call is so constant, that makes it harder for folks that also have other jobs and things that they have to do. Taylor, beyond uh, the immediate need of housing, uh, some shelter, you also provide financial help. Describe that process and how you determine how much a family needs or how how do you get that financial aid to folks quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when an individual um, is it's experiencing a disaster, whether it be something what we consider small, like a home fire, all the way up until they are in a shelter setting with us for a long time in the event um, you know, of, of a larger disaster, like most recently we opened a shelter with these spring breakup floods along the Kuskokwim River, we had individuals staying with us. Um, we do damage assessment on their properties. Um, once it's safe to do so, our volunteers go out and they, they actually physically assess the property. And once they analyze the level of damage of that property, then we, um, in the process of that individual coming into our shelter and coming into our system, um, we have a system that determines, depending on the level of severity of the disaster, depending on the level of severity of their home, we provide immediate assistance in the form of um, financial assistance. And what that financial assistance is used for is to take care of those immediate needs. So if you lost your home, you might need, you know, uh, groceries or clothing or, you know, toiletries or prescription medication that you lost. And um, our caseworkers and our volunteers that are on that immediate assistance um, track, they help the individuals take care of those immediate needs. Um, in addition to financial assistance, we're also available to, available to provide disaster mental health. You know, when these individuals are impacted by a disaster, that's traumatic. And we want to make sure that not only are we taking care of their physical needs, but we're also taking care of those mental needs because we know that, you know, our mental health affects our physical health. And we want to make sure that everybody is, you know, when they're with the Red Cross, that they're able to feel that care and that comfort. And then we also have um, disaster health services on staff to assess um, any of those physical needs as well. And then once we um, are able to get them into our shelter, get them into our, our system and intake them and, and get that immediate assistance, then we're also available to help with the recovery process as well. So we'll walk them through um, you know, what it takes in order to sort of get back to that normal, whether they're able to return home, whether we need to work with them in order to find alternative temporary housing, long-term housing, our, our recovery process walks them through that entire step-by-step -step process, even working with other agencies if there is like FEMA involvement or if there's other grants and opportunities, small business association, unemployment, things like that. Our caseworkers work hand-in-hand -hand to guide the individuals that are impacted by this disaster through that process in order to make sure that they're able to fully recover. That, that Thank you for clarifying so many of those services that I really wasn't aware that the Red Cross did all of those things. So when, you're, when you were talking earlier about Red Cross volunteers doing damage assessment, is that part of the training that Red Cross provides or are you looking for volunteers that have um, expertise and knowledge in these areas? It's yes to both of those. You know, um, 
anybody and everybody can volunteer for the Red Cross. It's really as simple as going to redcross.org slash volunteer and signing up. And then our volunteer recruiter will work with you to sort of see where your skill set or where your interests lie. And then we provide training from the bottom up. So really, our volunteer workforce makes up 90% of our disaster responders. Nationwide, our, we have about 21,000 disaster responders, and 90% of those are volunteers. And they are doing everything from, you know, being that welcoming face when you first enter a shelter all the way to leading the entire disaster response and directing um, our response in a given disaster. Those are all volunteers in a combination working with our regional staff as well. We play play a part. But our goal is to really empower the volunteers in order to help their own community and to be that face because we know that the volunteers on the ground know their communities best and know the needs of their communities. So we want to invite um, individuals that are in the community that are wanting to be a part of the process of both planning, responding to, and recovering from a disaster to join our workforce because we are really a part of all of that in conjunction you know, with our partners with the state. So yeah, we provide all of the training. And what's great about our training is a lot of it is available online. Virtually, we have volunteer opportunities for individuals that have an hour to commit a month to that want to work with us on a, you know, a day-to-day basis and wanting to commit four, five, six, seven, eight hours a day helping working with the Red Cross. Um, and that is what's beautiful about our volunteer workforce is we have, you know, such a variety of individuals. Wide ranging. Yeah, with yeah. skills and whatnot. And so we need um, anyone and everyone to, to help because we know that the scale of disasters are increasing and we're going to need to be prepared for that. Rick, uh, let's review some Murbach going back to Murbach last fall, this time last fall in September, we were in the throes of it. Talk about the forecasting for Murbach last year and how well those models worked in showing what was coming for the coast. Murbach was very well forecast days in advance by the large scale uh, weather models. Uh, it was really quite quite something to see. Um, and there was very little uncertainty by the time we were four days out or so, uh, the models, the model systems, many separate forecasts, uh, all were, there was very little what we call spread. So divergence in those forecasts. So that's the good news. We had lots of heads up that there was going to be a major, unseasonably early big storm in the Bering Sea. It was going to take a classic track to produce uh, coastal flooding effects up and down uh, the Bering Sea coast of Alaska. So that's the good news. Where, Where we can use improvement in the future is really being able to pinpoint as as the storm got closer, as the water started to rise, just how high that storm surge would be, how how elevated the ocean level will be. There, there is there are models to do that, and they were in the ballpark in most places, but uh, uh, maybe not in the right section in some places. So we still have a ways to go, and that really um, that's an important part of improving the science. The large scale, there's going to be a big storm. We couldn't not have done better uh, with Murbach. But the details, the impacts at the local community level, there we still have a ways to go. And 
whether it's the weather service, using forecaster experience, can't just rely on computers uh, to really hone that, but improving that numerical model, improving the observations that we have. Of course, in Western Alaska, we are really lacking in fundamental uh, observations like water levels. Um, and we need more of that to be able to uh, correctly model. We need better, uh, you know, bathymetry, the, the, how, the level of the ocean um, that critically influences how high that water gets. We need improvements in that. So kind of that split between, we knew a big storm was coming, but we wanna do better in really uh, nailing the community scale impacts. After the Murbach storm last fall, you wrote that the ocean was 10 and a half feet above the low tide at Nome on September 22nd. Brian, in thinking about that amount of inundation and the potential for that or more in coming years, what can communities do to help themselves be better prepared? We know that the shorefast ice isn't forming as it used to, uh, early enough to protect communities. Seawalls and protective berms were damaged or destroyed during Murbach. And that level of, that amount of sea surge at low tide just sounds like, I mean, I'm glad it was low tide. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So <clears throat> sometimes we are fortunate when we have these coastal storm events that happen, they impact us at low tide. But I think communities need to recognize that if that same storm came in and the sea surge uh, started coming into the communities at high tide, just how devastating that would be. I think Rick was right on point that we, we really need to collect more hyper-local data, if you will, about the effects of these storms so they can fine-tune their models. And we can say, for example, um, a storm might be coming in at high tide and it may affect the boats along the coast, or it might be so bad that it's going to get into the community and might affect the school, the power plant. So that kind of very detailed data is important. I think the good news story about um, the aftermath of Murbach is there was more coastal data collected by folks at the National Weather Service and NOAA and the State Division of Geological and Geophysical Surveys um, than there has ever been in a coastal storm in Alaska. So we have a, a much more high fidelity data where we can talk to communities today and say, if we have another storm like that, it could go this far into your community. The water could be this high. Um, you know, communities like Golovin, um, if you recall a year ago, many homes were uh, filled with sand that was washed mm -hmm. up from the storm surge. And being able to pr better provide kind of the maximum extent of how far water might go into a community is really important and the communities themselves will be able to much better prepare. They'll know how far inland they need to move their, their equipment, their vehicles and their boats and things like that. And so we work with them to not, under, not only understand how bad bad could be, but then the actions that they need to take. And you know, we heard a lot anecdotally from the remnant of Murbach, places like Hooper Bay, places like Golovin and Koyuk and Shaktulik and Norton Sound, that they have seen water come in both height and uh, extent inland uh, more than they have ever seen in their whole lives, uh, particularly talking to some of the elders there. So the communities can take that information now and plan for this season to make sure that they're moving things further inland or moving it up to even higher ground and uh, making sure people identify where were the safe places. Most schools are elevated. They're often shelters that the Red Cross works with and trains employees there. So um, having that awareness of how bad it could be and where you need to go and the actions you should take 
before we get that warning is incredibly important. We, we were so fortunate last year that no one died during that storm and, and that those lessons can be learned and applied without a loss of life to hopefully save lives in the future, of course. I think, you know, one of the beautiful things about Alaska and our communities, particularly in, in western Alaska along the coast, all of our rural communities, they're incredibly resilient. They have lived um, ages and ages of going through storms like this. And it's a testament both to the great forecast work that we had from the Weather Service and the individual and community resilience that's along the community that we didn't have any significant injuries and no fatalities. We very rarely have fatalities associated with our disasters in Alaska. I think that's because people know the dangers out there and they know what to do. And we want to keep that message going. Absolutely. Before we take a quick break here, Rick, I wanted to ask you about, um, after Murbach, you wrote online that it isn't unusual for typhoons to affect some portion of Alaska, typically in the fall, but Murbach was different. I was surprised to read that because I hadn't heard about typhoons hitting Alaska before Murbach. So talk a little about that. Sure. Yeah, it's actually, it is not uncommon uh, for typhoons to form in the western uh, Pacific, and typically they move uh, northwest towards Japan, and then uh, they turn as they get caught up in the jet stream and uh, head eastward. And so probably average one or two a year of storms like that. Now, they, they lose, typically lose their tropical characteristics long before they get to Alaska, as Murbach did. Uh, but typically, they will stay fairly far south. So along the Aleutians, um, this is a threat. Uh, Dutch Harbor on Alaska area, for instance, has had significant uh, uh, windstorms uh, from X typhoons, um, you know, in the last several years. Sometimes those storms uh, will move into the Gulf of Alaska. Some of the extreme rain events, for example, in South Central uh, in the fall have been associated with the remnants of these X typhoons even into the interior, um, these, these can bring uh, significant weather in their transformed state. What was different about Murbach was where it formed. It formed much farther east, was much closer to Alaska than the typical typhoon, and took a track that uh, produced this really uh, unusually early uh, extreme storm for the Bering Sea. But the ex-typhoons themselves are not uncommon. It's really uh, the track and where Murbach formed that made it so unusual. All right. Thank you for that. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion about preparations for staying safe and keeping your property secure and your family safe and sound in this upcoming fall and winter storm season as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska needs more quality, licensed child care providers. If you are interested in starting a child care business, connect with ThreadAlaska.org for support and guidance. There are several resources to get licensed and launched in Alaska. A licensed facility opens doors and opportunities for the business owner and creates a safer, more engaged place for children. You can make a lasting difference in the lives of children and their families. This message sponsored by Thread.
Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are talking about preparations for fall and winter storms and the forecast, the outlook for what may be coming this winter. We have in the studio with us Taylor Sousen, who is the Regional Director of Communications for the Red Cross of Alaska. Brian Fisher is the Director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. And on the line from Fairbanks is Rick Tolman, Alaska climate expert from the International Arctic Research Center at UAF. You can join our conversation if you have questions or comments or concerns, want to know how to sign up to volunteer or wondering about how to keep your property safe, 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422, You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Taylor, I want to t- turn back to you now. Talk about the importance of people planning to help themselves when a disaster strikes. And, and Brian, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on that, too. The Red Cross tries to deploy help within 48 hours, which is fast, but that's still a long time to wait if your house is gone. So how and what can people really do to survive until help gets there? What's some of the recommendations? Yeah, so it's super fitting that we're talking about this right now because September actually happens to be National Preparedness Month. So if you're thinking about preparing your family or perhaps preparing your business or your community, if you want to get more involved in preparedness, you know, there's no time like the present, especially, you know, as it is September. So we do try and have you know, our disaster responders within a community within 48 hours. But as we know, the geographic uh, landscape of Alaska might not necessarily make that possible depending on where the disaster strikes. So it's really important for communities themselves to work with the state in order to be prepared. Um, We also offer preparedness courses um, for businesses, for communities um, to help them know how to be prepared in a larger scale. But on a more Um, smaller scale, how you can work to prepare your family. That's super important to make sure that your family is prepared so that you can take care of yourselves before that help arrives. So we kind of want to encourage people to take three steps. The first step is to build an emergency kit. So you want to make sure that, you know, you have any supplies that you might need in order to um, make sure make yourself comfortable after a disaster and any, you know, needs food, water, blankets, flashlight, batteries, uh, a radio to make sure that you're able to stay informed, things like that. Um, The next step is going to be plan what to do with your family. Get informed about what disasters impact your area, your community, and know what you will do and make a plan with your family to know, for instance, if there's a wildfire, where to go, where to evacuate to. If there's a flood, where's the higher ground that you might need to get to? Um, things like that are super important. And then again, the, the last part is to stay informed. Find out where your evacuation point might be. Find out what you need to know about how your community is prepared. Um, and then it's also really important as you're going through these steps to keep in mind your family's individual needs. If you have individuals in your families that have additional needs like disabilities, mobility issues, um, If you have connectivity issues, things like that, to make sure that you're informed about that. And then also, we also like to point out that your family also involves your your pets, making sure that you have emergency needs for those uh, and emergency provisions for those members of your family as as well in a plan to get them out. So um, we want to make sure that you are prepared individually and and have those things at hand so that when a, a disaster does happen, that you're able to 
get where you need to go safely and that you have everything that you might need. And that you've gone through, one of the things that we talk about in our family um, related to emergency planning is where are we going to meet if all communications are down and we can't get to the house? Exactly. Where, where are we meeting? Another thing that might help individuals uh, be prepared is the Red Cross does have an emergency app. And if you download that app, if there you know is connectivity, that'll list your shelter locations, your temporary evacuation points. We send out notifications based on the geographic location of these disasters. And then it also, on that app, it has information about what you might want in a kit or how to make a plan for each given disaster um, so that you know it's kind of a one-stop shop and an easy place for you to go to check to make sure that those checklists are marked and that and that your family is ready and safe. We've been talking about uh, fall storms on the coast in preparation, but the Red Cross helped during the flooding disaster in Juneau in August. Tell us about that. And I, I believe you said volunteers got called in the middle of the night. So that's part of something that people should probably be prepared for. Emergencies don't happen between nine and five. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were called by the city and borough in Juneau in the middle of the night. Um, our disaster program manager that uh, is down there in our office in Juneau was well aware of what was happening. And um, fortunately, in that situation, there wasn't necessarily a need for a full-scale shelter operation. But there were needs from that community. We knew that people were needing assistance, finding that temporary um, temporary housing, that temporary shelter, sheltering, especially given the um, lack of temporary housing um, in that area. So we were able to um, open up a uh, community response center through our office, working with our partners in order to have kind of a one-stop shop for people that were impacted by this disaster to come to get information about how the Red Cross can help. Um, how they can get help from other informations. And then it was also kind of a center for the community, which was just an incredible response from the community wanting to give back to their neighbors that were impacted, um, a way for them to get information. So um, we, during that disaster response, were able to assist in, assist individuals find temporary places to stay. Um, we were able to give them some of that um, emergency financial assistance, take care of their individual needs. And then also we were able to distribute some emergency supplies, so some cleanup items um, for the individuals that did have the flooding when their, host, when their homes were uh, eventually accessible. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation or have questions for our experts on hand. We're talking about the fall storm season and the forecast, the outlook for what may be coming and how to prepare so that you are ready. 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. Brian, it can take years, as we know, for communities to recover after a severe storm event. Are you still working with communities that were affected by Murbach? Absolutely, we are. As a matter of fact, we're still working with communities in South Central from the earthquake in 2018. Mm. Um, I think, like Taylor mentioned, some of the challenges we have with time and space and geography for our rural communities when a disaster happens, it's, it's very tough. Oftentimes, we can only get supplies into those communities via barge in the summer. Most of the time, those barges are already full of all the things a community needs for the next winter, despite a disaster happening. 
So that timing in which we get big rebuilding materials out to fix roads and bridges, to fix power plants and water treatment plants, uh, kind of the infrastructure that residents use in Western Alaska is often a multi-year process. Once the funding is approved, we have to do this whole logistics dance on making sure we can get the supplies out there and then have contractors and, and other volunteers out there to help affect the repairs. So. We're working oftentimes five or six years on these larger scale disasters before it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not surprised that it takes a long time for all that recovery and assessing building damage and getting things repaired. Rick, we don't want to cause undue stress for Alaskans, but being prepared is important. You mentioned that you're concerned about the potential for extra heavy rain events because of the heat in the North Central Pacific Ocean. What are you looking at and what should Valley and Kenai communities especially prepare for? Well, really around Alaska over the last five years, you know, we've seen uh many of these extremely high precipitation events the tragic landslide in haynes in december 2020 one of those atmospheric rivers record 24 36 hour rainfall across the northern panhandle many places in alaska have seen um, record short duration say a day or two or less precipitation in the last five years and this summer was a good example of course of it's not just about extreme short duration precipitation, but repeated, repeated uh, rains, frequent precipitation as we move into winter, frequent snows. So thinking back to 2012 and all the heavy snow on the Gulf Coast uh, that winter so that the, you know, looking at the at the National Guard coming into shovel roofs in uh, Cordova, mm-hmm and Valdez, so it can be these long duration events too. But really, I think if Murbach taught us anything, and hopefully it taught us a lot, was that, you know, we're, we're in a different world now with these warmer ocean temperatures. We cannot rely on, well, I've lived here for 20 years and I've never seen that, so it can't happen now. We need to set aside that mindset and understand that things are happening that we uh, that are outside of our individual experience uh, and in many cases even outside of our collective community experience and um, we have certainly seen uh, whether it's the Mendenhall River flooding in August or Murbach or or a host of other events that um, things happen that uh, and are going to happen that we do not have experience with that that it will be worse may not be your community but somewhere in Alaska is very likely to have extreme precipitation event uh, this winter because we've loaded the dice with the warm uh, ocean surface temperatures across the Pacific. We've loaded the dice with an El Nino in progress in the equatorial Pacific that will affect the storm track. So uh, really almost anywhere there is the potential for extreme precipitation um, in the coming uh, storm season. All right, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll continue with calls and questions with our guests, our experts on what we can expect for the fall storm and winter season and how you can prepare as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. One of the greatest honors for a public media station is delivering on its promise to provide quality programming and news you can trust to the communities it serves. 
What you hear on air is the result of a dedicated team working together to bring you the best. It's a privilege to be a part of your day. Thank you for listening, for your feedback, and for your support. Support for public radio comes from the communities we serve. Whether you give as an individual member or through your business, know that your contribution makes possible programming that informs, inspires, and entertains. We thank you for the role you play in your public radio station. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you'd like to join the conversation, that's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's go to the phones for a moment. Guy is in Valdez. Hello. Hello. Um, I just wanted to say that... um, because we're still burning fossil fuels that every year from now on is going to be the hottest year ever. And it's because we're putting more hydrocarbons in our atmosphere. And if you look at our atmosphere, it's the contents of what we breathe in and out of our mouths is 78% of that is uh, nitrogen and 21% oxygen. And um, then we get down to that 1%. And out of that 1%, 93% of that is argon. And then 2% is um, all of this moisture that is in the air. So that's 95% of that 1%. And then we're talking about all that rest of that 5% of that 1% of what we breathe every day is these hydrocarbons and fluorocarbons and other things that we're putting into our atmosphere. And so... Do you have a question, so sir? Um, Pardon? Do you have a question? Um, yeah. Um, they better get ready for more weather-related stuff, and um, we're just getting to see. I'm glad I'm going to be dead within the next 10 years because you guys that are going to be alive, you haven't seen suffering yet. Okay, well, let's let give our guests uh, an opportunity to respond here. Guy is clearly very, very concerned about climate change and over adding fuel to the the atmospheric fire that is uh, happening. Uh, Taylor, I see you nodding. Yeah. So we know that the climate crisis is a humanitarian crisis, and we know that the d- pace of disasters is going to increase. So today, we, the Red Cross, is responding to nearly twice as many large-scale disasters as we did a decade ago. In fact, in the past year, in 20. 20- 23, we've experienced a record $23 billion disasters. And we still have, you know, about four months left to go. So we know that the pace of disaster is increasing as a direct result of the climate crisis. And we are prepared as the Red Cross. We're doing everything that we can to make sure that we're able to respond to that increasing pace of disaster. Um, It's it's very prevalent in our minds um, as disaster responders to know that the climate crisis is in direct correlation to the increasing pace of disaster and then the increasing need of, of our response. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the call, Guy, and your concern. Sue is in Fairbanks. Hello, Sue. Hi. Yeah, I'm calling from Fairbanks. My home is in Rome. And uh, one, this is a shout out to Rick Tallman, who has uh, been so 
meaningful and useful and helpful to Western Alaska because especially the Bering Straits region, he has a special Facebook page where we are able to track our weather and uh, look at the history uh, as well as what's not coming. And it's just a tremendous service, not just to know them, but to folks in the villages. We, we love that Facebook page, Rick. And I also wanted to add that in, in the case of Mubon, it isn't just home. Um, people need their homes, but what they love, the heart of rural Alaska is at the, at the subsistence cabin or camp. And Murbach wreaked a lot of havoc there. Um, and, and that has been, uh, I, I think people are still looking for some financial support, trying to figure out how to rebuild a, a remote cabin that, um, you know, that their grandmother originally built. But that was what really tore a hole in the heart of Western Alaska was the number of beloved subsistence camps that were just wiped away mm. uh, by Murdoch. But so, I just wanted to add that, that it's kind of another component to the damage that was done. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Sue. Such an important reminder of... You know, the pain of recovery of your home is one thing, but something that has been part of your life and your culture for generations. What a tremendous loss. Brian, how how are you looking at some of those things that that may be harder to assess uh, because of the historical nature of them? I think that was a great point. Thank you for that, Sue. Um, we certainly working with our partners, Coeric and Bering Strait Native uh, Corporation and, and uh, Norton Sound Health Corporation, to help folks in the Bering Strait region. Um, in particular, for the response to Murbach, the first time ever the state of Alaska has provided funding to survivors to repair their cabins that were destroyed. Um, we have programs, Taylor spoke recently or earlier about immediate funding that they're able to provide. We are blessed in this state, I can tell you. We're one of only a handful of states in the nation that have a state program that's funded to provide support to individuals and families when a disaster strikes. And that's not just for people's homes, for their primary residences. We also provide support, and FEMA does as well, for replacing subsistence gear that was lost. Whether it's a boat, boat motor, whether it's fishing nets, whether it's ammunition, that was lost. that's your business, right? Those are business expenses. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we think it's a, uh, and it's unique to Alaska, that subsistence lifestyle. So Governor Dunleavy directed us to uh, also provide funding after Murbach to replace the structures themselves, the cabins like Sue talked about. Uh, FEMA can't do that. They can help with the home uh, to rebuild or repair a home, but they can't for the subsistence camp structures. But the state of Alaska can. So we have a great partnership uh, with with Murbach. Essentially, we allowed FEMA to replace nets and fishing gear and that kind of the, the equipment that was lost. And the state picked up the tab with... Uh, Great thanks to the funding from the legislature that they provide to actually provide funding to rebuild the camp structure, the cabin structures that were lost up and down the coast and along the rivers. And, and the, same thing in the in the spring flood. And the Red Cross did that as well. For the first time in the history of the Red Cross, we were able to, um, through the grants of our national organization, provide um, the equipment that individuals need for that subsistence lifestyle as well. So we were funding folks to get things like pressure canners and vacuum mm -hmm. sealers and fish drying racks as well. And that was a very unique response that the Red Cross has never done before and that was so unique to Alaska and we are so grateful that our national organization was able to support that and to help the communities with their with their unique needs and we adopt in that way um, across the nation depending on what what is impacting the community. And, and do you both see sort of a, a shift toward more awareness of the unique 
uh, individual needs of communities and regions as opposed to a one-size-fits-all response. Is there, it sounds like there's a growing recognition and understanding of that, and, and uh, how has that changed? Because I imagine in the past, you know, this is the first time, as you're saying, that subsistence equipment is being replaced. So on a national scale, you know what we're really grateful for um, for the Red Cross of America for the Red Cross of America. You know we Alaska is kind of looked at as the canary in the coal mine for the climate crisis, mm-hmm. and so our national organization is looking to us here in Alaska to see how we are responding to this increasing pace of disaster, to see how it's impacting the communities along the coast because they know that it is eventually going to travel down to the lower 48. So they're really taking a hard look at what we're doing up here and and our unique needs and applying that to our response on a, on a national and global level. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the other changes that we see, you know, there is a food security problem in the state of Alaska, right? Particularly for our subsistence communities. So on a good day without a storm, there is food insecurity challenges with respect to subsistence harvests. And when we have a disaster, we see that uh, loss as well. You know, Deanne Criswell, the administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, came up while there were still floodwaters in the communities during Murbach to see for herself in western Alaska what that looks like so she can go back and work with Congress and work with FEMA in Washington, D.C. to educate them on the needs that we have up here. If you lose your freezer because the power goes out from a storm, that doesn't mean you can go right down to the grocery store and replace everything right. that was lost, even with the financial assistance we provide. Losing subsistence, uh, you know, fish, game, berries, uh, fowl, eggs, those kind of things is just different and unique up here. And I think the federal administration is doing a good job at coming to Alaska and not just coming to Anchorage, but going to the communities throughout the state to get that understanding of what a subsistence lifestyle really is. Well, that sounds good that there's a a more targeted response that can really help people. Rick, uh, we only have a couple minutes left here, but you you said the ocean temperatures in the eastern Bering Sea are actually below normal. Is this surprising, surprising given the heat in other areas of the oceans? Um, it's, not, uh, it's not too surprising. I mean, there are patches uh, in the world's oceans, uh, even though on the global ocean, if you look at every ocean area, the average temperature right now is higher than it's ever been at this time of year. But there are patches that are below normal. What's going on in the eastern Bering Sea is in part a lingering effect of the very cold April that we had across uh, uh, Northwest Alaska and into the Bering Sea region and relatively late um, ice melt. So that's some of it. Some of it is the fact that uh, Western Alaska, Southwest Alaska was one of the few places in the Northern hemisphere that had a near to below normal temperature uh, summer. And there was really very little sunshine across Western Alaska, South Central too. these kinds of, of regional scale uh, differences from the large scale are, you know, that's going to happen. That's always going to happen. Um, it's just happened to be um, the Eastern Bering Sea's turn this time around. Next time, it'll be maybe the Gulf of Alaska. Maybe all the oceans around Alaska will be warm, as we saw in the blob years in 2015-16. Uh, Do El Ninos normally are about a one-year cycle? Is that correct? Most El Ninos typically last about one year, um, about uh, 20%, so one in five will persist for two years. But the vast majority are one year. 
In our final minute here, uh, you've been talking, Taylor and Brian, especially about the federal and state response and the programs that the state has. Do most of the recovery funds come from the federal government in these types of situations? So it depends. Um, in Murbach's case, yes. Um, in general, when the federal government comes in, when the president declares a disaster, they reimburse uh, homeowners and communities up to 75% of the cost to repair. Um, the state picks up the other 25%. I think that's an important key. Normally, when a disaster happens between FEMA and the state of Alaska, we're paying for the recovery, and it's not coming out of individuals' pockets or communities' pockets to rebuild and repair from the damage. How are what's the discussion like, um, Taylor? You'd said that you've gone from about two billion a year to twenty billion a year in emergency response. What are these discussions, Brian, when you're talking about budgets and what the needs are, and are do lawmakers understand that this is going to just keep ramping up? They absolutely do, and both at the state level and the federal level, every time there's a disaster, it's not just investment in repairing infrastructure. There's also money to mitigate from the effects of future disasters. So when Murbach happened and we lost the seawall, um, we not only repaired that seawall, but we made it taller, we made it stronger to resist uh, these impacts from the future really intense storms that happen. So mitigation is key to prevent that damage from happening. And there's funding that comes along every time a disaster is declared to do that mitigation activity. And and Taylor, in our final minute here, um, for people who have it in their heart to want to help, but they're like, uh, I don't know if I could go out on the front line of a disaster, you also need volunteers to do other things and you need help in calm times. Uh, tell us about that and, and then remind us where people can find out more. Yeah, absolutely. So not all of our volunteer workforce is going to be the people that are traveling to Hooper Bay, to to Gullivan and things like that, doing the physical in-person response. Um, we need people to help us, you know, with our administrative things in our offices uh, on five locations here in Alaska. So best thing to do is go to redcross.org slash volunteer and we'll find a place for you. All right. Well, thanks for helping us better understand that. Thank you so much to our guest today, Rick Tolman, Alaska climate expert from the International Arctic Research Center at UAF. Taylor Sousen is the Regional Director of Communications for the Red Cross of Alaska. And Brian Fisher is the Director of the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Our engineer today was Chris Hyde. Our producer is Madeline Rose. And on the phones, Michael Finelli helped us out. Thanks for listening. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.